in politics, incentives are all structured around winning or losing an election. Philanthropy, the incentives are fundamentally different. Now, I can only speak to my experience, unique and wonderful experience with the Obama Foundation and what that brings in terms of brand and reach and reputation. But that's the fundamental difference. One is win-lose, and the other is much more open to or prone to a win-win dynamic, which is for me, oh my goodness, it's a wonderful transition from that other environment, if that makes sense. Hey everyone, I'm Emily Collins-Ellis, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the Managing Director here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and we want to help them better understand each other. And so we bring you season three of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, the producer and host of the show. I hope this finds you all well and enjoying your week. This episode is a big one. We had the pleasure of speaking with David Seamass, CEO of the Obama Foundation. We held the interview on November 13th, so right after the U.S. election, which was an incredibly cool time to be diving into the topics of philanthropy and democracy and politics and government and so much more. Oh my goodness. My co-host for the interview was none other than IG's founder, Carlos Miranda, and it's really no understatement to say that we left the interview feeling completely inspired. David's approach to leadership and mission is brilliant, and the conversation was filled with so many gems for people to walk away with. So whether you're a fundraiser or a nonprofit professional, or even if you don't even work in the nonprofit space, fundamentally, we ended up speaking about humanity and empathy, and it's given me so much to think about, both from my professional life and my personal life. So to tell you a little bit more about our guest, of course, the Obama Foundation doesn't really need an introduction. It's the philanthropic legacy of former U.S. President and former First Lady Barack and Michelle Obama. And the foundation's mission is to inspire, empower, and connect people to change their world. The Obama Foundation has many remarkable core programs, all designed around this mission. From the Obama Foundation Fellowship, which supports outstanding civic innovators from around the world, to the Girls' Opportunity Alliance, which empowers adolescent girls through education, My Brother's Keeper Alliance, which focuses on building safe and supportive communities for boys and young men of color, its annual summit, and so much more. Our guest, David Seamass, is the CEO, as I said, and he has had an incredible career. He joined the Obama administration in 2009 as deputy assistant to the president. 
He served as director of opinion research for President Obama's re-election in 2012. And following that re-election, he returned to the White House as assistant to the president and director of the Office of Political Strategy and Outreach. My goodness. Before we dive in, finally, I of course want to send a thank you and a shout out to our official season three sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership makes this all possible. And we also want to send a thank you and shout out to our fantastic media partner, Alliance Magazine. Check out their website, alliancemagazine.org, for lots of really interesting philanthropic insights and tips and news. And you can get a 25% discount on an Alliance subscription by using the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, at checkout. All right, that's enough for me for now. Uh, We'll go into the interview and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, David, to What Donors Want. We are absolutely thrilled to have you on the show today. And it's such a treat to be speaking with you, especially in this week, given everything that's happened with the recent election. Thank you for that. It's a real joy to be with you and to dig in and engage in a conversation where hopefully if I say anything useful, People can uh, use it, and if there's anything that isn't of use, they can quickly discard it. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. I'm sure it will be incredibly useful. So before we dive into the meat of our questions, and of course, all about your work at the Obama Foundation, we always like to start off with something completely unrelated to philanthropy or social impact, which is our get to know you speed round of questions, mostly, of course, for fun to get to know you as a person and also to promote the idea that, you know, everyone in leadership positions, we're all fundamentally people and and partnerships is really about understanding that connection. So we have a series of six questions. Carlos and I are going to speed fire them at you and then we'll go from there. Does that sound okay? I can't wait. All right. Perfect. So question number one, what has been the best thing that you've watched during lockdown? It stars Anna Torv, who was the female lead actor on the TV show Fringe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a show called Mindhunter. It's a little dark. It's about serial killers and the FBI. Excellent. But it's amazing. Good to know. I've not seen that. David Fincher did it, right? It's I believe David so. Fincher. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear a lot of good things. I hear a lot of good things. One for me, what do you miss most about working in government? Oh, my goodness. Every once in a while, you're able to do something that you can, at the moment, see that it is having a beneficial impact for a a tremendous number of people. And so it's rare. Most of the time, it's plotting and incremental. But when things align and you can really make a big impact, that's those are the special moments that I miss the most. Yeah, I can imagine. What is your favorite thing about living in Chicago? The lake. Where I live here on the south side of Chicago, we are a five-minute walk to Lake Michigan. And I'm telling you, you can hop on your bike. You can then cycle into the city. You'll be there within 30 minutes in the Chicago skyline, like just kind of dipping down into the lake. And on a day when it's clear and the waves are coming in. It's just one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And I really do love it here. If things don't work out at the Obama Foundation, you can always work at the Chicago like Board of Tourism because I'm planning (laughs) my next vacation. I've never been to Chicago, so I'm I'm like, next vacation. If you could take three months off and intern in a completely different profession you don't have a lot of experience in, what would you choose? 
I would intern someplace in the East. And so someplace in Southeast mm. Asia around meditation. Right. And so it would be a mix between an internship, but more kind of a three-month silent meditation in the heart of Buddhist practice would be just otherworldly. So that's at some point between now and when I finally check out of this existence, you know, to be able to do that for an extended period of time would be amazing and probably transformative in some ways that I can't even appreciate. Yep, that sounds like what we all need right now. <laughs> that sounds great. What is your favorite decade of pop culture? Oh my goodness. I love the 70s. Mm. The 70s are a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not just because I was a child. I was born in 1970. And so like the formative memories of 77, 78, 79, and just my immigrant parents, very conservative, but talking about all the people with long hair and the hippies everywhere and the music, television, raw. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I joke about, you know, all in the family and the Jeffersons and, you know, Sanford and Son, just the level of kind of raw, funny, holding a mirror up to culture. It was really powerful. And yeah, it's, it's not even close. The 70s are just a hot mess that people should mire themselves in for a little bit. This isn't the last question. I'll get to that in a second. But where did your parents immigrate from? Just out of curiosity. My father came from the middle of the Atlantic in an island in the Azores archipelago called St. Michael, São Miguel. Right. right. My mother came from continental Portugal mm. uh, in right. this part of the country about three miles, three and a half hours south of Lisbon called the Elentejo, which is this really arid part of Portugal near yeah. Andalusia on the Spanish border. Yeah. They met in Mozambique in uh, Southeast Africa, which right. at the time was a Portuguese colony, got married back in Portugal and then immigrated to a small city in Southeastern Massachusetts called Taunton, which was the hub of the Portuguese American diaspora mm -hmm. uh, in Southeastern Massachusetts. And so the mix of the Azorean kind of isolated mindset, the Southern Portuguese, rural, conservative framing, the sprinkling of the exploration of Africa and all the good and the tension, and then the American immigrant experience mm -hmm. plopped down in a community of thousands of others who are sharing that with you at the same time. Oh my goodness. For me, it's that city, that hometown for me of Taunton, and this is probably true for everybody in many ways, but it so defines me and my experience. But the, those are the those are the waves and the different strands. I think we should make the whole podcast about that. Like, forget <laughs> all those other questions. Let's just talk yeah. about that. All right, last question. If you could be the lead singer to a cover band, what band would it be? Only because... Like, my default is to The Who. 
And so I guess that would make me Roger Daltrey. But I just cannot scream in, frankly, very few humans, I think, certainly male humans, can do justice to the primal Daltrey scream. But that would be it. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Amazing. Oh, wow. (laughs) Thank you. That is the end of the speed round. That was fabulous. Thank you for indulging us in those questions and telling us so much about your family background. It's so interesting. So now let's move into part two. So the the main meat of our questions here and also talk about your background in a different way. So as listeners know by now, of course, you are the CEO of the Obama Foundation and there's so much to dive into there. But before we get into the your, your specific work at the foundation, could you zoom out for a second and tell listeners about how you got into this world, into the world of politics and philanthropy in the first place? Again, back to my hometown in Taunton, Massachusetts, a small city of 50,000 people. The newest group when I was growing up were the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. But when you think about that community, essentially the tribal identities were all European diaspora immigrant. And so they were the Irish, they were the Italians, they were the Polish, there were the Portuguese, and then there were the Yankees, the the folks who'd been there for a couple of hundred years. Mm -hmm. And each community segregated into different parts of the city. I grew up in the Portuguese village around Ward 3 and Ward 4 in the city. And politics, for me, first came from my dad, because growing up in a Portuguese fascist dictatorship, the pride and the sense of responsibility that he felt as an American citizen to engage and to pay attention and to when he voted to make sure that it was informed was just in the conversation of the home and the bloodstream of our existence. That then manifested itself in this kind of tribal dynamic where the Portuguese voted for the Portuguese, the Irish voted for the Irish, the Italian, et cetera. And so, In some ways, the first lesson about American politics, I learned when I was running for my school committee. I was 23. I announced to run when I was 22. And I remember that I was knocking on doors and asking people to vote for me to be on the school board. And I had prepared and studied around all kinds of different issues, and I was ready to engage. And frankly, in retrospect, I had no idea what I was talking about at all. But fortunately, if I knocked on 4,000 doors and spoke to 1,000 people who were home, maybe half a dozen or a dozen actually asked me about policy. Everybody else wanted to know who I was, who my parents were, where do they work, where did I go to church, where did I go to school. They were doing this assessment of who I was as a person, because when you think about politics and government and democracy, in some ways. Essentially, the voter is putting themselves in, in this place where they are, they, there's agency that they're giving you. And so they're not going to be in the place to say, oh, tell me about your perspective on this aspect of education reform. Some do. But most people are doing this kind of value-based assessment of who you are and whether or not there's a connection with you. So for me, it was began with my dad, kind of marinated in this tribal, ethnic, constant battle that was local politics. 
informed by those first races that I ran to get a good perspective of how people thought about democracy and issues. Uh, and then that just launched me on what has been close to a 30-year life in every aspect of American government and politics, local, county, state, and then up until four years ago, federal in, oh my goodness, so many lessons and things I would have done differently and things I'm proud of and things that I'm not. But that's where it began. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine. That's so fascinating and and such a, a brilliant span. Uh, and so, of course, from, from 2013 to 2016, you were assistant to President Obama and director of the Office of Political Strategy and Outreach. What an incredible role that must have been. I know that was only one of the ways you were involved in, in the Obama campaign and in the administration over those eight years. Just wondering now, of course, you're in the world of philanthropy, obviously very closely tied to the, to the Obama world as well. But how does that compare? How does working in philanthropy compare to working in politics? So incentives are different. Mm. I try to begin with the understanding of the people I am engaging with in the groups that they represent or that they engage with. And once you begin with that assessment, you begin to think about, okay, what are the incentives that each one of them has in order to do the things that they want to do? In politics, incentives are all structured around winning or losing an election. And it's very difficult to remove, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to remove yourself from that mindset of, is this good for the party? Is this good for the candidate? And just pause and engage in the act of governing and not being in the perpetual campaign mode, which unfortunately I believe that at least in the United States, I can't speak for other places, we are in a nonstop political campaign mode that then makes governing essentially a zero-sum proposition. And when you engage, at least in the United States, in a zero-sum approach uh, to governing that is informed by the politics of the moment, the reality is, and we just saw this last week here in the United States, 160 million people vote. If you look at the presidential outcomes, the House outcomes, and the Senate outcomes, you get pretty close to 50% of the people voting for a Republican in some level, President, House, or Senate, and the other 50 voting for the Democrat. And so there had always been an assumption, I think, among some Democrats that if just more people voted, clearly we would be ascendant. Turns out that's not true. It can be in certain jurisdictions, but essentially, for me, that just gives you a very important insight. Zero sum will never work. Bringing the I win, you lose mindset won't work. And structurally in the United States, it doesn't allow for that. And so the incentive piece around government and politics is, is in that nature. Philanthropy the incentives are fundamentally different. Now, I can only speak to my experience, unique and wonderful experience with the Obama Foundation and what that brings in terms of brand and reach and reputation. But that's the fundamental difference. One is win-lose and the other is much more open to or prone to a win-win 
dynamic, which is for me, oh my goodness, it's a wonderful transition from that other environment, if that makes sense. Totally. That makes so so much sense. That's really, really interesting. Hmm. So we've told our listeners a little bit about, obviously, about the Obama Foundation in the intro of this podcast. But for anyone who isn't really familiar with the foundation's core programs, can you give us a quick overview and tell us about what, you know, about the actual work that the foundation does? It was a little over four years ago, Barack Obama called me into the Oval Office. And that's an experience that no matter how many times you are able to walk into that room as a son of two Portuguese immigrants, you never get over the awe of the room and then of the president, no matter who the president is, right? On this day, he was describing this vision of what he and Mrs. Obama wanted to build. And essentially what he said was that he believed he could have more impact after the presidency than he had during the presidency. In my words, not his, but essentially imagine a world where you could find and identify 100,000 Barack Obamas and 100,000 Michelle Obamas and connect them together in the largest network of civic leaders that the planet has ever seen. Imagine the good that you can do if that's what you build and that's what you're focused. And so, Carlos, for us, it isn't focusing on specific issues. It's focusing on finding a generation of civic leaders, either in the nonprofit sphere, in business or in government, the three legs of any community stool, and then create this uh, network, create an ecosystem so that even though many of them feel as if they are toiling alone in isolation, they're actually not. They are connected to others who are doing the work. But here's the most important part for us. Once you find these young men and women, and and we are loosely looking at people between the ages of 25 and 40, primarily, but make sure that they are steeped in a certain approach to leadership, a certain core set of values that, for me, I think about an old boss of mine, Deval Patrick, who was the governor of Massachusetts. And he said, look, you can lead in one of two ways, by having people turn to each other or turn on each other an inclusive type of leadership that's based upon aspiration and hope, and another top-down, more autocratic kind of leadership that sometimes uses fear and division. That's an oversimplification, but it's a way to say there is a values system that we are going to be looking for from our leaders that we are selecting, but then a series of norms, a normative environment to surround them with to go forward. And so that is our North Stars around leadership development. Two other areas of interest that flow to and from that. First, in the United States, in the George Floyd protests that flowed from his murder are an example of that. But uh, understanding race and understanding the divisions and bias of race in the United States, but also in other parts of the world, in informing our leadership development by the realities of racism to do two things. One is to make sure that our leaders are truly representative, but secondly, to make sure that as they're developing their leadership model to understand bias and understand race and understand how it plays. And so 
that manifests through My Brother's Keeper, which is a program of the Obama Foundation. The other is around gender and specifically around uh, women and girls empowerment. Race is an, has been an inhibitor. Gender has been an inhibitor. And so making sure that that's also informed in terms of what we do. Final thing I'll say on the work of the foundation is that we are building a campus on the south side of Chicago, a 20-acre campus that will be the hub, not just of the work of the Obama Foundation, but also of what we believe will be this massive network of civic leaders throughout the planet, whether they ever come to Chicago or not. And so uh, that's what the president has asked us to build. And final thing I'll say on this is imagine the world in 30 years, if the three of us reconvene and do this uh, in the year 2050, and there are 100,000 Obama leaders throughout the planet who are connected to each other and to a network of funders and mentors and government relationships, in business relationships, in a way that has never been done before. Imagine the good that that will do. And so that's what we do and why we do it. Thank you for that answer. I think two quick follow-ups for me then is, as CEO, what do you focus kind of the majority of your time on? And kind of a follow-up to that is how much are Barack and Michelle Obama involved and in what ways? Primarily, uh, certainly over the course of the past year and a half, the majority of my time is fundraising and storytelling. And those two are intertwined and connected. They are not separate. They are one and the same. Part of the importance of Barack and Michelle Obama is, uh, both in terms of their leadership and who they are, is story. We as a species are storytelling creatures. We search for connections and we create narrative. And so I can go to Africa to our program participants and say the word Obama. And it conjures uh, emotions, it conjures perceptions and stories. And, and they, while they sound differently, different in different parts of the world, there is a story. And so my job is essentially to be a storyteller around the Obama way and the Obama vision. And then with donors who have their own stories and their own aspirations and the things that they care deeply about is to see where their story and our story align and interconnect in a way that's mutually reinforcing and beneficial. And so that's, that's where I spend most of my time. And I love it. It's it, even this conversation, like digging into the story uh, of what we're trying to create is, it's wonderfully fulfilling. Carlos, what was the second um, question? Yeah, just kind of in terms of how much are Barack and Michelle Obama involved and in, in, in what ways? Deeply uh, involved in so with him, program design, and I don't mean, you know, the, the minute details, but when I said something like, you know, what are the values at the core of what we do? Well, that has to begin with him. Like, what are the core values that you, Mr. President, from your teens through being a former president of the United States have informed you, not just in you, but in those that you admire and see? Right. And we asked them that question recently. And one of the beautiful things about the president, the former president, is 
he will crystallize things and simplify them like any good storyteller will. And he will always admonish us to not overcomplicate things. Because at the end of the day, essentially, his leadership and his view of leadership is based upon the following. It's a variant of the golden rule. Every single human being has voice, has value, and has dignity. They want to be seen and they want to be heard. The job of any leader is to make sure that that's built into their day-to-day, into the way they interact with people, to not view people as tools or as a means to an end, but as a valued and ethical creature, right? That, that in some ways, simple but important kind of depth gives you an insight into like that type of discussion. Another type of discussion is around the design of the campus and the discussions that he has had with our architects about the buildings and what they should convey, the symbolism and what's important, right? There's a depth there. Mrs. Obama, on the trip we did to Vietnam last December, in the way she is engaged with the young women and girls around the Girls' Opportunity Alliance, in the constant reminder to us of being strategic and being disciplined in being focused, in making sure that we're doing those things that we have a comparative advantage at and not doing the things that we don't, right? And so they are, the two of them, deeply engaged on issues like that around strategy because at the end of the day, it's the Obama Foundation, right? It is, it is theirs. And so they are deeply engaged and involved um, in, in ways that give us strategic guidance. Mm-hmm but then in a way that's consistent with the leadership model, give us the space to go and execute and to iterate and to be nimble and to learn and adjust and then check back in for additional strategic guidance. That's right. It's, it's not a restrictive leadership, but an empowering type of leadership. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for telling us all about that. And, and, it's a really wonderful relationship. I think there's so much to pick up on there, especially around the storytelling. And I love I love how you said fundraising is storytelling and it's about being true to your values and your story and then aligning that with donors and bringing them on that journey, calling them in, not calling them out. And, and there's so much to dive into there. So I'm just going to put a slight pin in that because I will circle back to that in in a moment. But I also want to dive into the topic on everyone's minds right now, which is, of course democracy in in all its forms and and whether or not you're an american or in the us it's it's a topic that is kind of central to to the world at the moment and i'm really curious about what is the role of philanthropy in civil society and particularly in relationship to a government's role if i am a member of a community in any place on the planet and it's going to vary depending upon where i am and what i look like and in a variety of other factors right but If I look at business, I view the incentive of business, certainly in a a capitalist structure and framework, as profit maximization. It's really not about me. I am a vehicle. I am a means to an end. And so I will participate, but I don't trust. If I look at government, and again, it depends on where I sit and what type of government I'm engaging with. But what you see pretty clearly throughout the planet, with few notable exceptions, is a complete breakdown of trust, 
in a deep cynicism, especially around democracy, where there is a view that a politician is only interested in their reelection and in saying what is required in order to secure the reelection and perhaps in benefiting themselves and people like them to my detriment. And so I engage with the government and with political leaders with a deep skepticism and mistrust. And so, Rachel, in this environment of mistrust and cynicism around two of these legs of the stool, what a wonderful opportunity for philanthropy done correctly to be essentially a node or a vehicle or a place of trust where trust doesn't exist in in other places. And so the best philanthropy, from my perspective, is the one that begins certainly with, here's what I want to do and the impact that I want to make. But again, if you insert that, how can I make sure that this is a trust-based relationship, where going back to what I said about the Obama norm of people being seen and being heard, in being part of the solution and not simply the beneficiary of my largesse or my kindness, which is wonderful, but limiting. That's, I think, what there's a unique and necessary role to fill a gap, not just programmatically and from a policy perspective where the private sector and government fail or have limitations, but more broadly from a social capital, social cohesion perspective, which for me is at the heart of what we're dealing right now, there is a unique place for philanthropy to fill in that trust gap, which for me is definitional, at least in the United States. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's so interesting to think about because, as you say, the, the power of philanthropy is in trust, but also philanthropy is only as impactful sometimes as the philanthropist. And so it, it depends on who's giving away the resources and in, in what way and, and, and for what reason. And so that's something we think a lot as, about as a firm because one of our core missions is to essentially create a, a generation of more strategic philanthropists who are willing to shift power and willing to be accountable in ways that philanthropy hasn't had to be in the past. So I think it's so interesting and I completely agree, but sometimes I get stuck on how much can we trust philanthropy if the people leading that philanthropy are to some extent misguided or or approaching it from the wrong direction, which can be tricky. Or and so enamored of rigid ideology or philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a problem also with government and, and with business. If you approach, in my opinion, any situation with some form of ism in some form of ideology, where you take the broad and myriad variables in the nuances of human nature and societal interaction and cultural variance and difference and say, ah, I've got this one approach mm-hmm. that frankly applies to this and many more, that's arrogant. Certainly it's important to have a philosophy and a framework to orient so that you're not firing on a multitude of different cylinders that are disjointed, clearly you need some kind of organizing principles. But then you need to make sure that you build in the nimbleness and the ability to say, okay, I'm going to fund this organization in this way. 
because of what I've seen in their leadership, in the trust that they have in the community, in the model that they've developed. But I'm not going to fund and put the same restrictions on this other organization because they are fundamentally different and they're differently situated. They, they operate in a different environment. Their leadership structure is very, very different, but I see potential in what they do. And that's hard. Mm -hmm. uh, it's both hard philosophically and also from an execution perspective. But again, if trust, and again, this is my bias, and this is my own limitation in some ways, right? My own prism. Uh, requires that you, and I, I, I dislike catchphrases in one of them that I'm increasingly disliking because of overuse is meeting people where they are. But meeting people where they are requires yeah. that tailoring in a way that's a mix of both humility and confidence. The confidence of knowing as a philanthropist that I can make a difference in the humility of changing and varying from my priors based upon the new facts and situations that I've seen. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard. Yeah, it is hard, but I love that. And I think the humility piece also extends to understanding why someone is a philanthropist in the first place. And, and that's particularly true for individuals, but understanding the, the reasons and the systems that brought them there, and then whether or not those are correct or just and working to unpick that within ourselves and within our communities. And I think that that really is the work of, of truly shifting the power in philanthropy, which is something, you know, shift the power is a phrase that individuals, institutions, you know, whether it's Anand and Winners Take All or, or all these amazing books that have really shaken up the sector and forced us all to reckon with these topics. I think it's quite interesting and, and just a, a really important conversation to keep having. So shifting gears slightly and, and, and circling back, as Rachel said earlier, you describe yourself as a fundraiser and a storyteller, right? As you know, the vast majority of our listeners all over the world are fundraisers themselves, right? And I think a lot of people are looking for inspiration right now, especially during COVID, right, on how to kind of fundraise and storytell better. If you could sit down with a fundraiser, you know, either kind of young or middle management or kind of earlier in their career, in their career, if you could sit down with a fundraiser and who's looking for advice, what would you tell them? It's not about you. And it's not even about your organization and what you're trying to do. It is all about the person that you're going to sit across the table with in finding, understanding their story. And I don't mean their resume. Their resume is interesting and, and a wonderful curiosity, but as much as you possibly can, getting to know who they are and why they are the way they are. Understanding what is that, that problem that for them is so vexing, that thing that so drives them in a way that is consistent with their story and experience, that really is that flame that says this is where their passion is. And then giving the time and the honesty to say to someone, if you've gone through that exploration, and frankly, there isn't an alignment, to be clear, there isn't. But I hope to continue the conversation and work with you because you don't know where our paths will cross again. But essentially, it's that orientation, again, around understanding the mindset, the experience, the passions, the interest 
And finally, making sure that even though you need to raise money and everybody has their number that they need to raise, if you're building a long-term relationship and you're being honest with people, the likelihood of that gift or series of gifts over a period of time being transformational increases rather than the other approach is the political fundraising. Political fundraising is a quick, transactional, time-bound, emergent series of conversations and transactions driven by a momentary emotion, usually. It's different, fundamentally different. And so it's not about you would be the first bit of advice I would give a, a young fundraiser. That's great advice. And I started my career as a fundraiser. But to pick up, you describe yourself as a fundraiser and a storyteller. So that's phenomenal fundraising advice. And I understand the two are obviously extremely linked. From your perspective, what makes a good fundraising story? So for me, when I am engaging with any individual that I want to develop a fundraising relationship with, I want to know them, but I also want them to know me. We all contain multitudes. And there are true parts of my story that are completely aligned with true parts of your story, Carlos, and your story, Rachel. And being able to, in those conversations, make that story-based, emotive, and empathetic connection, just as you would when you're developing a relationship with any human being. It's the reason why you meet someone for the first time. Where are you from? Tell me about X, Y, and Z. We're all probing for, oh, I know what you're saying. I make that connection. That's what you're looking for, right? And then once you've done that, what is the part of the Obama story and what we are trying to build that can lay out that narrative? And so for me, I think about this, again, using the stool metaphor. There are essentially three stories that I'm trying to align. There is the story of the prospective donor and what she or he cares about where they came from in their journey and where they are. There's mine that only comes after in terms of introducing myself in a way where I can resonate with them or I can uh, make that personal connection. And the third element of the story then is to begin to weave the story of the foundation in our work in a way that then has this beautiful potential there is a emotional connection. There is a personal and empathetic connection. There is an, a potential alignment around story of what we can do together. But again, that's right. That's not here are our metrics. Here are the specifics of what we do and how we do it. That's all important and it will come later. But that's the way I try to weave them together, sometimes successfully and other times not, so. I love that. I think that is such clear and important advice for listeners, the storytelling, the listening, where we had another guest say, it's 95% listening, 5% talking. And yeah. I think it's also interesting, you know, you said it's, it's not about you as the fundraiser. And in the same breath, it's also about letting the donor know who you are and sharing bits of yeah. your story in a way that makes sense and is, to some extent strategic, but also just authentic and genuine for the relationship. So it isn't about you. 
but we also know that people give to people. And it, if you can Correct. sit down and have a nice conversation and you genuinely look forward to that meeting and that yeah. call and you, you know, the, the banter is in the way that it needs to be, the, those things make a difference. So, and, and, and Rachel, the, the isn't about you is, is for me, when I say it is a reminder mm-hmm. that there is, there can be a performative aspect to this where to the, to the 595 piece, if you orient and remind yourself that it is about this individual sitting across from you, you can correctly apportion mm-hmm. the listening and the engaging and the drawing out. But then when you come back, then you can draw from yourself in a way to reinforce. And obviously you never leave yourself at the door, mm-hmm. but it's, it's the appropriate calibration of the relationship. And at the end of the day, you are asking someone on the one hand, you're asking them for money or time or expertise, but when done correctly, it should be viewed as, Oh my goodness, what an opportunity for us to partner on something together. Mm -hmm. Completely, completely. Well, the power is never completely equal to some extent because of because of the money, but the more that partnerships are as equal as possible and that you're coming together to do something bigger than the sum of the parts, it takes off the pressure as well. You're completely right. It is that it's, it's about so much more than, than any of us as individuals. That's really cool. So I know I'm, I'm mindful of time. I know, I know we're almost there. We just have one more big question for you and then, and then we'll wrap up. So of course, in your 2019 Obama summit speech, which we absolutely loved, you started by quoting the brilliant Toni Morrison, who says, what can I do where I am? And I know it was so clear watching that, that that quote means a lot to you, that it means a lot to the Obama Foundation and is really, as you say, integral to your mission to building this community of civic leaders. And it's also a question I think that everyone around the world has asked themselves in a way that they may not have before this year, whether it's COVID, whether it's the election it has been a turbulent year. And even those of us working within the social impact space, whether you're a fundraiser or some other role within a nonprofit, it's a really, really important question. And I think we're asking ourselves it in a way that we haven't before. So I'm wondering during this time and you know, speaking to listeners who are working within nonprofits, who are already within institutions that are trying to do good, but who are trying to push those institutions further, what would you say to them? How, how can we help and empower people to better serve their communities? That quote and phrase, obviously, all of us can hear that differently, and it can mean very different things. And so I can only, I can only tell you what it means for me. And it goes back to the listening piece. One of the amazing paradoxes of this moment is even though we have never been more connected In some ways, we have never felt less connection. And especially in this moment of then physical isolation, it's hard. And philanthropy and people who engage in the nonprofit sector who are driven in many ways to do good and to be compassionate and to make the world a little bit better, that is a wonderful intention. But once the intention is set, the risk always comes in where, where we want to do things to people, where we assume a lot about people, where we are so filled with the righteous, righteousness of our cause 
that we're quick to ascribe motive, intention, or whatever the case may be, in a way that then pushes people apart and frays the civic and social fabric even further. Where I stand for me is about truly taking the time to understand completely all of the people around me and what their needs are and how they think about things. And even in a political moment, for example, where I can fundamentally disagree with people and I can easily fall into the place of ascribing motives in my own perspective of what it means that you voted for this one and not for that one. But I don't know. I don't know the heart and mind of another human being. I don't know what drives someone to think one thing or think another. And so that idea of doing what I can where I stand requires first a true kind of broad understanding of that place where I stand and just the understanding of people and the listening before then I can do what I can in response to the assessment of people and how they present in all of their glories and in all of their failings, including mine. That is, and I, this is the second time I've referenced Mrs. Obama, this time directly, the other time by inference or reference. She, when she did a town hall in Vietnam last December, a young woman, she was interviewed by Julia Roberts. It was wild. Julia Roberts and Michelle Obama on a stage in, and this was actually in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And Mrs. Obama uh, started a riff on humility and confidence. The confidence of knowing who you are, the confidence of understanding that you have agency and you have voice and you have power and you have something to lend to make the world a little bit better. Balanced with the humility of knowing that you don't know what you don't know. And to be open to learning and to engaging and to questioning your assumptions in what can become a virtuous cycle of confidence and humility in a way that is really, really important. And so, especially in a COVID moment where fear, anxiety, economic difficulties, interpersonal difficulties, health difficulties can lead people to turn inwards. You know, taking a tick to question assumptions and to listen a little bit more with that spirit of humility, I think is really important. Um, so thank you for asking that question. It's a good reminder even for myself because I don't want to pontificate. You know, one of the risks of engaging in this type of discussion is sometimes you can, you know, speak with a way to say, ah, here are the solutions for A, B, C, and D, right? And at the end of the day, even though I can say all of these things, I know that when I reflect tonight on my day in all of my interactions, you know, more than half the time I fell short of what I aspire to, which is a good reminder. Yeah. Well, finally, we always ask our guests the very same last question. And that is, what is the one thing, the one thing that you want our listeners to take away from this conversation? You are not surrounded by enemies. You are not surrounded by people who are so different than you. 
you are surrounded by human beings who are 99.999% the same, who are facing the same types of challenges and insecurities and anxieties and fears and angers and hopes and aspirations that you are, all of us. And it's incumbent upon everyone to begin with that mindset that, um, you know, in the words to paraphrase Barack Obama, we have a lot more in common than those things that separate us. And especially after an election in the United States, and given what we're facing around the world with COVID, we're not enemies. You know, that's, that'd be the one thing, Carlos, that um, hopefully people can take away. Wonderful. Wow. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for your time today and for being so open to dive into all of this with us and, and inspiring us. My goodness, I'm certainly leaving inspired and I know our listeners, there's no way that, that they won't be either. So thank you. And thank you for your time. This is really, really wonderful. It was uh, Rachel and Carlos. It was a great honor to spend some time with you. And as I said at the beginning, if, if there's something of use, good. If there's something that's not of use, then discard it. But I've enjoyed our time together. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we've got for today. Of course, another huge thank you to David for his time, for his advice, to being so open to tell us about his experiences and dive into these topics with us. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes coming soon. And in the meantime, of course, you know where to find us. We're at Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors. Our website is impactandgrowth.com. You can email any of us on the team directly for a virtual tea or coffee or beverage of your choosing. You can find our emails on our website. We're definitely here to chat about all things philanthropy and fundraising and democracy and shifting power. Anything you choose, we've definitely got lots to say. So please do reach out. We love hearing from you. And finally, of course, another huge thank you to our official sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, for making this possible, and to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget, you can use the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, for a 25% discount on an Alliance subscription. All right, that's it from us for today. Thank you again for listening, and see you soon. Bye.